about ready to start. Uh, thank you for coming, everyone. I'm Julia Hartley. This is Adil Vardasi, uh, Natalia Dinkariuki, and David Bowe. We're really happy to see you here. And David is going to briefly introduce the network and this event, and then we'll start a roundtable discussion. Thanks, Julia. Um, so we're the, the four of us make up the kind of core steering committee of uh, the Gender and Authority Network. Uh, which um, is funded by uh, Torch and the Balliol Interdisciplinary Institute. Um, and I also wanted to kind of say thank you to um, the Centre for, Gen uh, for Gender Identity and Subjectivity, which is um, co-sponsoring uh, this evening's event. Um, so as a network, we got going with a conference uh, in January on the theme of women in the canon, which was particularly interested in the way that, um, that gender intersected with issues of cultural authority, uh, quite broadly conceived. and the conversation there and the kind of impetus to do something to keep going with the conversation at that <coughs> conference um, led to the Gender and Authority Network which took more um, explicitly the, the themes that we've kind of been exploring through the lens of women in the canon uh, and we hope through the kind of uh, through the, the, the name and our kind of manifesto I guess which you can find on the Torch website um, opened it up to a kind of broader interdis interdisciplinary discussion than, than, uh, the, uh, and kind of brought a, brought a larger group of people into, into, the, into the conversation. And we're really happy to have a, a large group of people uh, in, uh, for the conversation this evening uh, on the role of on the, uh, gender studies and women's studies as, as methodologies um, compared, continuous, different. Um, and so I'll hand over to um, Adele who will get us going. Yes, uh, and I would suggest that we start by briefly introducing um, ourselves, uh, what we work on, and how does uh, our research and projects relate to the thing, um, event. Um, let's start. Okay. I'm Mara Kier. I'm a departmental lecturer in U.S. history. My first book was on red light districts and the regulation of vice. And I'm currently working on a project. I'm just at very early stages of a project on rape and popular culture around New York City uh, in the, again, late 19th, early 20th century. So um, the short version is Coney Island and girls getting raped under the boardwalk. So. <coughs> Well, that <laughs> is uh, something of an introduction there. Uh, I'm Maria Yashok, and I'm the director of International Gender Studies Center at uh, LMH. I'm also a research fellow at uh, LMH. Uh, my background is uh, anthropology, sociology of uh, uh, China, and my particular interest is in anthropology of religion and uh, Islam and uh, female-led Islamic traditions in, in China, and perhaps the most important collaborative work has been a study of the origins and history of women's mosques. And I'm so happy to say yesterday I got a paperback copy of a very, very expensive hardback. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, good evening. My name is Kim Mamaji, and I am the Aung San Suu Kyi Gender Research Fellow at IDS, International Gender Study at Lady Margaret Hall. And I have been working many, many years at the Bora, traffic women, on, on forced migrant women and children. And um, I, have a, um, I also have been working with Myanmar, including another body for in, in terms of gender empowerment. And my, my, my interest is like I did study, I did complete my PhD about the changes of 
feminist women position under colonization, nationalism, and militarism. So, and, 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 and also, like, you know, I have worked in many areas of um, particularly focusing on <coughs> how structural inequality of power that creates a lot of um, suffering of the people. And I also am a documentary filmmaker. So I have, um, I have, a, I just, uh, I have a documentary film called Dreams of Beautiful Daughters. That was last film, and that focused on the life of illegal migrant women at the time by my borders. I'm the third of the Lady Margaret Hall group. <laughs> so, um, my name is Joanna Serrado. I'm Portuguese. I'm currently uh, the Gordon Milburn Junior Research Fellow in Mysticism and Religious Experience. Um, I work, my project, my background is in philosophy, in medieval philosophy, but my PhD uh, in, uh, that was done in the Netherlands was on uh, uh, theology. And uh, uh, my project here, I work on uh, the manuscripts uh, process, uh, so the voices of early modern women mystics, um, disciples of Teresa of Avila in the Portuguese speaking world. Hey, my, my name is Julia Manhertz. I'm a lecturer at the history faculty, and my background is um, research into 19th century Russian history. Um, I'm currently working on a project about amateur musical cultures in the Russian Empire in the 19th century, <coughs> and within amateur musical activities, gender plays a very important role because a lot of um, music that is made domestically is generally regarded to belong to a female sphere, both in the sense of the place where it is performed, but also in the sense of a certain kind of genre that stresses sentimentality and love and longing and uh, these kinds of things. What brings me to the part of authority and gender in this roundtable discussion is that when I went through a list of popular sheet music at the time, it struck me that many of these really sentimental songs were composed by heroes of empire, by generals and highly ranked bureaucrats. And I thought, well, this is really odd. These should be men who buy into a militaristic uh, form of masculinity that historians always assume is also sponsored by the autocratic states, state. And so how sentimental music and generals fit together is something I'm trying to figure out. Um, hi everyone, I'm Alison Moulds. Um, I'm one of the coordinators of a new project called Women in Oxford's History, which is a six-part podcast series which has been funded by the Torch AHRC Graduate Fund. Um, it was initially actually the brainchild of my collaborator, Olivia Robinson, who can't be here today, but she deserves a shout out for creating the project. So I'm here in that capacity. I'm also in the third year of my PhD in English Literature, which is about Victorian doctors, specifically writing by them and how they represent their work. And within that, I also have a chapter on early women medical practitioners. So that hat as well. We should also probably mention that um, Lynn Robson, unfortunately, was unable to be here uh, this evening, um, uh, who was going to be um, speaking on behalf of the MST in um, women's studies. 
so um, hopefully that's, uh, uh, there are some, some people who have experienced that program here this evening um, who will be able to fill some of that gap in the conversation. Um, so the next question we wanted to ask is, what role do researchers in women's and gender studies have in shaping university policy and environments? Anyone want to jump in? I think for the historian, the obvious way of thinking about this is that when we speak about gender and we teach um, related topics, we of course communicate in how far these things are ideas about gender change and that we shape policy in a way that we open up possibilities that we see things that we don't like. There's no rule that they have to stay that way because historically speaking we can say that they haven't always been that way. So. I think obviously the most direct involvement that um, we have is in shaping the curriculum. Um, and one of the things that really interests me is the difference between sort of research projects and teaching projects. And how, um, while I very much talk about sort of the relationship of men and women, um, and I look very much at gender as a cultural construction, I also want to teach that as its own week, but also to have um, the, the US history MST course, which I'm, I'm involved in, heavily involved in, um, is very historiographical in its structure. So I make sure to have a week on women's history and have that historiographically, um, and you know, talk about some of the the social, you know, the social history, the the Marxist introduction, as well as the cultural turn, and then have another week that talks about gender and sort of post-structuralism, and so I think, but that's quite different from my work, um, but I think that both issues are really important, and we may think about sort of. Um, the issues of gender in one way in our research, but we also have to think about it, how we perform it as teachers and lecturers and seminar leaders, and then also how we craft it in terms of the, the curriculum. Um, you invited us coming from different backgrounds, different disciplines, mm -hmm. or, or gender uh, inflected, and associated with different institutions, so I might as well sort of clarify how it is that I see uh, the role of uh, IGS uh, mm -hmm. to, to have been uh, in that. And by way of, of talking about it, if I may, just uh, preface this, referring to a book launch uh, mm -hmm. last night. Uh, I don't know, some of you may have been there. Nancy Weir's Marquez book launch of uh, she launched Keep the Damned Women Out. Mm. Yeah. yeah, you may have uh, uh, been there, but those uh, of you who haven't, it's really quite a fascinating account she's giving of the beginnings of co-education. And uh, she's asking, uh, answering the question of why, during the late 60s, early 70s, why did so many elitist, traditional, uh, privileged uh, colleges at that time embark on co-education? That is the question uh, she is uh, uh, seeking to answer. 
well, as a, as a result of women campaigning, <laughs> of, you know, uh, you know, some idealistic, yeah, sort of attempt to further the cause of women, with education, and so on, so on. What is her conclusion? Against the background, she says, of a declining student population, of mm. fierce competition on the part of colleges for the best students, meaning male students, the need to find a way to enrich a college culture and to find a way to attract the best male students. In other words, bringing the girls. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this is, you know, quite, quite a sobering, yeah, mm -hmm. and I think uh, a very insightful conclusion because what she's also saying with that, although the process of accommodation was relatively smooth, little change in terms of the culture. Mm. A, a college and university culture that served men so well. And that has particular implications, particular mm. legacies in terms of resources and infrastructure, mm -hmm. you know, that serves well-being, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, yeah, conversations, the way that space is organized to, you know, serve debates and discussions and, and so on. The legacies of that, I think, uh, in, uh, and that also, it made me think a little bit about the origins of <coughs> IGS, yeah, which was oh, set up, founded, really came about 33 years ago. It wasn't something that the university set up or established that served a particular cause. It was brought into the university by a group, by a number of feminist anthropologists who thought felt they needed a space inside university, you needed to insert themselves into university, into space, to have a space for, yeah, thinking. Thinking uh, in unprecedented, in radical ways. And out of these beginnings um, uh, came a space that served the purpose of women, but was largely shaped also by well, in part the wish for autonomy, in part also I think the university's marginalization, of course, of, of this, this group. And that had huge implications, the volatility, you know, financial and otherwise the center, but also the huge uh, flexibility that IGS have always uh, uh, preserved. And because of the uh, disciplines of the founders of the center, social cultural anthropologists, it uh, became a center with a very multi uh, cross and interdisciplinary uh, profile, uh, very intersectional, very collaborative, and very feminist uh, in uh, tradition and very outward looking. And that is quite important. So when I've been thinking about that question of role of researchers, role of, of this uh, particular uh, center in terms of shaping university policy uh, environment. I think that as researchers, as members of IGS, we are thinking as much about the impact of gender studies researchers and research on universities in Myanmar, in China, in Turkmenistan, Georgia, wherever we have our yeah, many programs, as we are concerned 
about uh, the impact we have here. Um, specifically, our impact is in terms of making university aware, for example, if you think of the uh, Burma portfolio, which is a very important uh, kind of focus of this university uh, uh, to uh, uh, establish uh, closer links with uh, Burmese um, uh, universities. It is our job, developing a Burmese studies program, to uh, emphasize the gender-inflected programs, uh, research projects, and so on. And we have, and that is why here together we uh, are coming to sort of represent, I think, what IGS is, is bringing uh, to, to the university. So on the one hand, I think what we bring is the very international yeah, aspect that we are you know, uh, looking towards uh, the widening, the, uh, the outward yeah, um, expansion of, of uh, I think, the influence that gender studies has, the widening of impact of influence. On the other hand, we seek to influence where we can in terms of you know, particular uh, policies. Lastly, perhaps what we're doing, we're providing and continue to provide a space, a space as a center for discussion, for debates, for workshops, for conferences. But Kamamaji, uh, if you can sort of yeah, talk a little bit about the work that you're doing yeah, in terms of IGS. It's a and, and, uh, and a few things that's is really interesting because as I listen here, gender study is normal in many countries. You know, and many universities has gender study goals, but not, this is not the case in Burma. We do not have, do not have gender study goals. So actually really interesting thing is that you know, and how it implicates a lot of policy. <coughs> university, women dominate in uni university throughout all over Burma. But there were no rectors, no female rectors until last year. So like all the rectors are men, department had lecturers, all of them are women. So like, you know, uh, of course you can see that, that how it will lead to policy and all that. So really interesting thing that these universities, and also, uh, now we must remember that Obama was a militarized for many, many decades. So militarized education is patriarchy education that only taught broke learning system. So in Burma, we do not have like you know, any way that we can critic of our culture is right or wrong. And, uh, and, uh, and many, most female teachers, they were in university, they never have training. So they never have a training. So really interesting thing is that the first thing that like, and you know, we talk about uh, um, oral history, methodology, training, and like, you know, I always remember that like when we asked about oral history, they said, why these ordinary women matter? They said like, they are ordinary women. Why they should be studying? We should be studying. That is the first question. This is not important. This is not history. That should not be researched. So that is like a really interesting thing is that like, you know, so that is now, this has been 30 years that we have been doing, you know, like you know, convening in Burma and, and uh, using all these research methodologies and training. And uh, the best thing that like, you know, we provide like, you know, uh, our uh, Burmese language and, you know, and uh, they have to come up with their own understanding of critic of local culture and that make the, the training very rich. So and uh, and, uh, so, and 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 uh, this is the third time, and they have been very actively involved for the first time. And my work is just finally, my work is so it made me 
it makes us think that like you know, about the gender curriculum, you know, to do that, to, 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 uh, to start to uh, develop a gender curriculum. And a really interesting thing is that there's no gender curriculum in Burma, no sex education in Burma. But at the same time also, as you all know, the transition, all this violence increase, including rape. So, and at the moment, when we start, I started to do the like an agenda curriculum, and the really interesting thing is that last time we had a workshop in October in Burma, the first question was like, um, what is gender? It took 45 minutes to discuss mm -hmm. and disagree with that. So, like, and, but it kind of really interesting also, like, you know, moving forward, because of like a lot of rape and AIDS and all that, and the sexuality, they never talk about sex. You know, like a sex, a sexuality. So actually, that is a, such a big challenge. And all the teachers are shocked. And remember that most of them are unmarried, single spinster. <laughs> so, and, and in a culture that like we are not allowed to talk about sexuality and all that. So actually, really, that this is a, the training is really helping these female lecturers to change like an understanding of gender in their own culture and to be critical of way of knowing about So when it comes years. to the universities, international linkages, academic linkages, we have been able to persuade the university to invest certain resources on in, you know, gender components. You know, Burma is that's simply an illustration yeah, of that. But the lack of gender is not only in, in Burma. <laughs> yes. I mean <laughs> <laughs> I can only go we could go if, um, and I can provide, uh, well <laughs> you, you all know a lot of examples, but just here in the Faculty of Theology, yeah. mm -hmm. it was necessary to be the first woman uh, faculty uh, uh, chairwoman to have, uh, uh, to make a, a enormous impact, not only, well, our research was also focusing on church history and the, the, in, in the role of women, but she, for instance, transformed the Faculty of Theology, she and a team, of course, is not one person, but she embodied uh, the authority of such transformation. So Faculty of Theology became theology and religion, and uh, suddenly it starts a new curriculum where the discipline of feminist theology begins, so ne this year or next year. And philosophy will have the next professor of feminist philosophy, it will be appointed, so we are now. Uh, <laughs> and in, 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 this, uh, in this, well, it is a little anecdotal, but that shows also a sort of how women in gender studies make a direct uh, influence on also on the subject. So this fellowship I have changes each three years it was an endowment and changes from college to college. So three years ago, um, so I applied three years ago, but six years ago, a colleague of mine doing the sort of same work as I'm doing, but in, in the Italian context, Madalena de Pazzi, so a historian but in, in student of th uh, theology, she presented the project to become the junior research fellow in mysticism. And her crit at that time, so it was a man in charge, and they said, well, Madalena de Pazzi, she's just a saint, a devout, a pious woman. We, mysticism and religious experience, we have to do, deal with, uh, with, with philosophical and theological discussions like Kierkegaard. 
and she didn't <laughs> get the place. And then three years afterwards, there was this change, and the people were much more open. Mm -hmm. And because the college also, uh, the faculty wasn't, so this position was not in a determinate college, and and went to Lady Margaret Hall, and Lady Margaret Hall mm -hmm. at the EJS. So you see, it opened spaces in people. And that is not only, um, I think, just on the, on the uh, bringing women, but changing the field as well, how we consider the subjects. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in the podcast series we've developed, it's very much engaged with questions about women's access to education and academia. And I should say that I didn't really explain at the start that it's a six-part series, and each different episode looks at the life and, and career of six different women in Oxford, some of whom are connected with the university and uh, one of whom isn't. And I think it raised a lot of questions that would still resonate today about women's access to funding for research, um, equal pay, getting permanent positions. It turns out that a lot of the, um, the women that we profile, I should say I didn't research all these women, we had researchers who um, suggested people for the series and then they went and did the research. And the women that we profile ended up being from largely the mid to late 19th century and early 20th century. So a big time of the debate about um, women's access to Oxford and women getting degrees. And one of the big themes that emerged across the series was also women's reliance on networks of other women, both for women helping each other find scholarships, um, one of the women we look at, Ida Busbridge, who was a maths tutor, was very concerned about bringing girls from non-traditional backgrounds um, into Oxford. So it raised a lot of issues that would still resonate uh, with, with academia today. And it's quite a short-term project, so obviously I would be modest about claims about how it could uh, reshape policy or environments, but I hope that it's kind of set an example that projects about women's history can get funding within the university and also that projects started by DPhil students and ECRs can access this as well. And it's also been very interdisciplinary. We've had researchers from different fields. Uh, Olivia and I who are working on it are from different fields as well. So hopefully it's, uh, it sets a good example for more work to happen. Oh, and on the, the point about teaching and the curriculum as well, something that we're also quite keen to do with is work with local schools and embed some of these discussions about women's history and women's access to education at a kind of GCSE and sixth form level. There's lots of these debates about people um, interacting with women's and gender studies. Obviously, it would be great to embed it even before people are reaching university. Yeah. Um, are there any contributions from the floor in response to this question or any of the issues that our speakers have raised so far? I think it's institutional support is very important, right? In, 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 and uh, coming like three of us from Lady Margaret Hall, <laughs> which yeah. is a fast female college yeah. in Oxford, right? Yeah. So actually, really, there's like, you know, something, and also like our former principal, right? Yeah. So like, I mean, it's really institutional support is so important. And understanding of like inclusion of female researcher in research body uh, is not a threat, but it kind of just a contribution that would be also very, you know, uh, a powerful thing mm -hmm. to add. Yeah. But I think for the sake of record, yeah, no, no sorry, let the audience first. Yeah. Um, should we go with Lady Green? Um, I'd like to, uh, I'm Phyllis Ferguson, and uh, I'd like just to 
say a word about uh, St. Anthony's College in mm. the late 80s and uh, through the 90s. Um, it's a graduate college and uh, the parity um, in student numbers was equal. But uh, it became very clear to those of us in the college that women were having problems. And so as a result of this, uh, four of us decided to form what we called uh, a women's forum in the college. Uh, and we had regular meetings uh, in town, um, fortnightly usually. And it was very casual. People could raise problems that they were having. And the other thing that we did was that the four of us gave each person who came um, a little card that had our names, our emails, and our personal mm -hmm. telephone numbers. If anything ever happened where they felt they needed to contact somebody, they could call us. They knew that they could count on us. And I think that that was very important. The kinds of issues that were being raised were things like I'm invisible in seminars. Uh, I'm in a room, there are four of us who are women, the rest are men, and I put my hand up, but I'm never called on. So it was academic issues as well as social and cultural issues that came to the fore during the time of the Women's Forum. It was an extremely, extremely important thing um, and it was groundbreaking because we were the first college and the first part of the university to have a, a policy on harassment. We were the ones who set the line. Uh, and that, that was extremely important. Um, it was, at that time, um, a sort of skewed thing between senior members and junior members but over the course of the 90s, it became increasingly junior members on junior members, uh, the, the levels of harassment. Mm. But I, I'm proud to say that, that we really intervened in some very um, desperate situations and that the college became known for this. And as new women came into the college, they sought us out because they'd heard about it. So I think on a college-to-college -college basis, it's very, very important. And I know there's been a ground shift in, in <coughs> recent years. But I just wanted to flag up some of the early times. And I, I actually would like to really follow on on that. I think one of the things that's really important is are both the f what we can do formally and what we can do informally. And the role of mentorship mm -hmm. is so important. And having a woman in post even if it might, you know, not be a full post holder, or but just having someone that uh, younger students can go to, or that can um, create some of these networks, or introduce junior scholars to more senior scholars, or all of these, or just having an office with a door that closes where they can, you know, talk about some of these issues of harassment and invisibility is incredibly important, and that doesn't affect policy as such that's on paper, but it's also incredibly important. Um, and and I, I think that the experience of women's studies, the master's yeah. women's studies, tells a rather sobering tale yeah. of the difficulty, you know, of so many years 
of um, you know preparedness on the part of faculty to teach you know for nothing to contribute their labor for free to even at this point in time to have no site no space no room you know no physical space that you call your own it's still for you know from the point of view of the students much more of a virtual community than it is one with a s important spatial and thus political uh, identity. So that's a problem. The other problem has been indeed the campaign, the abortive campaign to set up a chair, gen gender studies, that mm -hmm. you know, we'll see. And most recently, uh, the abortive attempt to set up an MSc, uh, Masters um, uh, Science in uh, International Gender Studies. Mm -hmm. um, and that was uh, a joint attempt by School of Social Policy and SIAS, School of Interdisciplinary Area Studies, and ourselves, putting forward an excellent proposal, you know, part of the VCs. I think impact has been to sort of open the gate yeah, for new uh, proposals for uh, masters, but uh, we didn't make the first cut. Yeah, perhaps it wasn't considered that there wouldn't be enough demand, and mm. yeah, so that, that has been, you know, extraordinarily disappointing. I, I have a question, especially mm. for the, the more senior, and especially because you mentioned the role of women in mentoring. Mm. Isn't that dangerous in uh, cultivating this sort of, that not only women teachers and professors do have to perform uh, academically, but then they have this burden, well, uh, of being the role model and being the nurturing and pastoral care of of um, which wouldn't that I mean it is positive for the students. I'm just thinking how w doesn't that perpetuate the notion that the woman has to care in. Uh, I mean, I don't know if, if other people, but um, yeah. one, I, I mean, I saw a really interesting paper this earlier this year, as in part Torch funded. Uh, Imabangu Morin um, had a um, global networks of women. And uh, one of the papers was by a pair of Polish sociologists. And they were looking at art schools in Poland. Um, and the majority, about 70% of the entering class is women. But of course, when you look at who are, who's actually teaching in the art schools, it's 70%, 75% men. And so one of the things they were looking at, in, so in sociology, it's called leaky pipeline, when uh, you know, women uh, drop out like, I don't know, I don't even want to push the metaphor. But, um, but one of the things that they were saying that was incredibly important were the networks in terms of how women survived. And one of it was also about um, mentorship. So when, you know, who was invited to be involved in plein air? Who was invited to be involved in, in conference papers and conference panels? And so with men, um, senior figures would invite two-thirds to three-quarters of the male students, even though they were significantly underrepresented in the student body, while women um, in invited 50-50 men and women. And I asked, you know, I asked the sociologist whether that was because the senior women f had felt that they had to show fairness in their mentorship. 
And so I know it part of being a mentor um, might uh, be a burden and it might be, you know, fulfilling the stereotype of nurturing. But on the other hand, I, I, I see it almost as a personal mission myself to make sure that if we're going to continue to have women scholars, we need to take on that work and we need to build those networks and we need to clue our students into them so that they can take advantage of that vertical cohort that we can create. But that should also be by with men, motivating yeah, yeah, men. Yeah. Sure, Foster absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry. I was just going to say that that was definitely the mentality shared by lots of the early women academics that we were looking at, the fellows and the tutors, about how can they go out and bring more women to Oxford. So it's interesting. and slightly depressing, but <laughs> <laughs> the, the same urge is still here. But I was also just going to mention on the point of visibility, something that somebody um, flagged up in their research for our project, and somebody here will probably know more about this than I did, that apparently until about the 1920s, there was a quota in place at Oxford to suppress mm. the number of women students, and it was supposed to be capped at 25%. Mm. So the student body, the women should not surpass that level. And I, d I don't think they did. Um, while that, that policy was in place, but, oh, yeah. I think that went on until later. Did it? Actually, partly in response to Cambridge's cap, which was, mm. Mm. Um, <laughs> okay. was uh, I wrote a really interesting mm. comment, which said, basically quoted the boat race, and the mm. Cambridge winning the boat race all the time, is uh, it um, displaying sort of Oxford's lack of virility, or like <laughs> the, the, the men's <laughs> wants to get it worse, so they have to try and sort of also impose a cap and, uh, to try and sort of, Maybe it was scaled up a bit. I don't know. Janneke should know. She is one of our researchers, by the way. <laughs> I should give her a shout out as well. Yeah, no, I don't remember the exact date. Yeah. Uh, it was in place for longer at Cambridge. Okay. It was, than, uh, it was in place in both places. Yeah. But I'd never come across that before until a couple of our researchers brought it to us, and I just, I just couldn't even conceive that that had been in place. But do we have any <coughs> more comments from the floor? Before we move on. There was one question on this. Um, yeah, I just wanted to just to follow up your review. You, you described it, what happened at St Anthony's with mm -hmm. the support, which I'll come to. But I wanted to make a comment to about male mentors. One doesn't notice male mentorship is just called having a drink after work. Because <laughs> 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 it happens all the time, it's just invisible. Um, and often male mentorship of female students is called sexual harassment quite, yeah. quite easily. So I just yeah. wanted to say it's very important that for young women to have those um, more senior women to kind of show them the mm. way, because it happens for men all the time, you just don't see it. But the question I wanted to ask, um, and I'm, I'm new to Oxford, so I'm curious, about what the policy, what the gender study um, centre and various things have done in terms of policy to make sure that women are represented. Because I've got so many invitations to events which are not obviously dripping with women, i.e. humanities, which it's all <laughs> men on the panels. And it's like, I think this must be going past someone with partial blindness, don't they see? You know, <laughs> physics and maths and this, and it's like, man, 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 man. It's like trying to select a movie on a plane. It's all just <laughs> 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 I was wondering what, yeah. what 
you've done about, because those concrete policy changes really make a difference if you just say, look, guys, you have to have like the zebra striping in terms of representation. So does that happen? Are they allowed to just have like interminable man? <laughs> Oxford, of course, has the equality and uh, gender uh, directed by uh, Trudy uh, Coe. And uh, I think it would have been quite interesting to invite a representative of that unit because that is exactly what it is that they're concerned with. But, you know, given the complexity of this sort of organization collegial system and the parallel universes in which we, we live, um, although IGS had been in Oxford by that time about 26, 27 years, when I encountered Trudy, the director of that unit, she had never heard of IGS, but nor had we heard of the existence of uh, the presence of that unit. Uh, so, yeah, things are in place, but to what extent we connect or effectively work with each other, to what extent we effectively network, is a huge issue. We often don't even know what yeah, in, happens in other college, what kind of project that podcast series <laughs> taking place. At LMH, we've just started a famous revisionist history of female education, the place of LMH in that, and a great deal of oral history. I mean, yeah, I mm. think that's something you certainly did not yeah, know. So there will mm. be, yeah, I think so something of interest. It's very interesting dispersal Difficult. of political effort because it yeah. means that Difficult. each mm. and every college yes. has to do exactly the same yes. struggle yeah. over and yes. over again. Yeah. Over and over and over again. Yeah. Yes. Maybe we need your leaky <laughs> um, we, we probably have to move on um, for now, but there'll be hopefully some time at the end for some further discussion. So if you want to come back to any of these points, then we can can do the next kind of thing we wanted to kind of raise um, and consider, which is, I guess, um, in some ways follows on quite nicely from the question about um, panels where everyone is a man, is, is <laughs> in precisely the question of what do you do when it's difficult to find um, women in your source material? Uh, so I'm a medievalist, and it's great we've got another medievalist um, around, and, and uh, I, it's the problem, you know, it, what, it, are there ways of doing gendered studies, women his, women's history, women's women's studies in contexts where source material is difficult to find? Um, how do we respond to that? Does that, or, or how, how do we kind of look at look at history, look at um, where where women's contributions have been elided? For example, the, the reduction of oral history in, in, in the Burmese context. Um, what do we what do we do about that? What do we do when it's difficult to find? women in our sources? Mm. Well, yeah. I think it's in the one I started my PhD, and uh, I was looking at how many resources possible for on Burmese women. And three, they are not academic related. So like, you know, there is basically nothing I could find in the resources of when I started my PhD. So that's where, like, you know, when I was start to meet with the women at the Bora and inside and all this stuff, their stories are very powerful. And their story, individual story, can link to a political, socio-economic politic, 
all of them they can link if we look at like time frame and political lens right so that's really good and i think it's a and and my i'm accidentally i i'm incidentally interested in oral history because i started with phd and uh, i could not find the resources so like that's where like i started to say well look i need to find resources if they are not written it must be alive so that's where I started to uh, interested in an interview a lot of women in the, in the history, and I can start to see like kind of uh, uh, a kind of picture, right? Like you know, I can start to link with the, what happened in Burma, what are they saying? So like I kind of match it, but also really I have to compensate with the you know sound, cartoon, you know all you know. Now it's like on you know, social media, Facebook, everything that like gonna you know, try to compensate. What are they? How women are being represented? How do they we understand? Is it changing? What the kind of technology is influence on women? So all these stuff are like, you know, are on the materials for us, as long as we learn to look what to look for. I think you used a really important word, which was represent and representation. So um, one of the issues, I mean, my sources, I have women everywhere, so I'm lucky. I'm 20th century. You know, this is this is not an uh, this is not particularly an issue. But what I do have when I'm you know supervising students, and they want to look at some of the issues of of women where there are the, some of the sources aren't there, I have to often say, look, you're going to have to use non-traditional sources. So you're going to have to do oral histories. You're going to have to look at sheet music. You know, you're going to look at um, material culture. So you're going to have to, you know, look at tea tray sets or chromolithographs or matchbooks. Um, and my colleagues, one colleague in particular who shall remain nameless because I'm not going to give him a name, um, <laughs> it says, you know, oh, that's not real history. Doing representation is not real history. And that's, I mean, and that's part of it. And you have to sort of, you know, fight back. And this is, you know, and sort of say, no, look, there is methodological rigor to what we do. But there's also, because of some of our source bases, we have to be more creative. Mm -hmm. And that does not, you know, denigrate what we do. This does not disempower. And so, you know, part of, I find myself in sort of staff meetings where I'm saying, you know, we're talking about, you know, what, what the final honors theses are going to be or the MST theses are going to be about. And I'm saying, no, representation and talking about representation, not just, you know, is, is, a, is a valid topic. It's interesting yeah. what you're saying, that's not real history because yeah. that is exactly, yeah. Uh, the um, uh, comment, one uh, reviewer of one of my books, because yeah. of the amount of oral history, yeah, in that mm -hmm. book, this simply is not, you yeah. know, the history that I could commend to my students, or, you know, yeah. any of the uh, course yeah. readings, and yet in my work, which um, is, you know, on Islam, which goes back 16 centuries, spanned four, five hundred centuries, when we started our work, there was not a single a single written document that could be traced, you know, to a woman scholar, a religious practitioner in Islam in China, uh, simply because of Islamic injunctions on female mm. voice, havra, mm -hmm. which included publication, not only speaking in public, but also publishing, mm -hmm. publication. So how did one yeah, uh, uh, tackle that? Uh, together with these women imams with these religious practitioners 
we said, let's look at the sources, you know, the uh, received, yeah, yeah, sort of traditional interpretations, and let's ask who has written these, under what circumstances, what age, yeah, uh, when women were subject to what, yeah, kind of constraints and, and taboos. And what can we contrast, yeah, with that? And the contrast came from these women's own sermons that they deliver weekly in their women's mosques. And, you know, that, you know, and, and sermons that really reach back into women's ordinary lives, where interpretation of the Quran and the Hadith yeah, reflect these women imams' sort of understanding of the need to adapt, the need to relate the scriptures to women's life, to make that understandable. So it is that out of which evolved you know, a wonderful creative and collaborative methodology and a multi-voice narrative, yeah, yeah, of tradition. Mm. I, as a historian, I, I'm very familiar with the problem that the, some of the things I'm interested in don't leave traces in the archives. Mm -hmm. But I'm by far not the only, and the first historian to encounter that problem. Um, and and so I think this applies significantly or to a great extent when it comes to women's voices, which are really <coughs> hard to track down. Um, but not only in relation to women, the same is true when we look at um, <coughs> non-privileged classes of society mm -hmm. and in the Russian Empire in particular, which is under um, administered for most of its life. This sometimes also applies to to state servants where you think, well, maybe maybe this, the, there should be some places in the archive, but there, there actually aren't. Um, and I think because of this being a very general problem in history and having been a, a problem in historical research for decades, there have been numerous um, very inspiring studies for a long time now that show us mm. the methodologies of how to access some of these topics which we find interest, interesting. And some of these studies are from the 1980s and 70s, and, and, and I think many of them have become classics of historical research. So in that sense, I don't see myself that much as a pioneer anymore when it comes to to filling in gaps and and using some creative license to, to do that, because this is, to some degree, a battle I don't have to fight anymore, because, I don't know, early modernists like Natalie Thurman Davis fought it in the, in the 1880s or, 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 or earlier. So I, I think um, it's a real problem and it's a real issue and, and I wish that more of my musicians left some account of what they were doing. But on the other hand, um, I'm, I'm not the only historian, I'm not the first historian to struggle with that and, and, and there are some tricks and some ways of, sort of roundabout ways of um, well, solving the issue, maybe not as comprehensively as I would have liked, but at least some possibilities nonetheless. Mm. Uh, in studying a uh, field like mysticism that uh, doesn't uh, uh, get easily 
touched or appropriated. I, I, I uh, and also because it's not really a proper field, or it could be, but uh, so it's so vague as the name. We, we, I, I come across that um, uh, the, the materials I have to st uh, to study or to work on uh, related to women, women would be accepted in fields like literature or history, but then because mysticism in this case is connected with theology or in my background in philosophy, then it would not be accepted. So I have to change and uh, 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 steal sources and then come back and just, and then in, in, in a way I feel a little as a researcher saying, am I making up this uh, uh, in the sense that can I really, do I have the authority as a student, as a scholar, to say that this can be philosophical or theological? Am I not being so arrogant as a scholar? Or because if I then I speak, or just I should then just change fields and go to my colleagues in his history and then be a proper. So in that sense, and also in mysticism, it's interesting to, to trace. It was a part of a, a theological discipline as mystical theology, <coughs> as long as it was uh, uh, done by men in, in sort of treatises and essays. But in the early modern period, in Renaissance, when there was starting to be a, a more personal uh, and uh, uh, um, genres within mystical uh, texts, like autobiographies, eruption of and uh, poetry <coughs> and so on, then the, the mystical theology became mysticism. And that was problematic. And then it was not more scientific. <coughs> so it's, it's, uh, it, 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 I, I don't know how is the position of the research in that, in that sense. So it's a little like... It's this authority then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I somehow I feel... Well, be, it mm. is the same what you were describing mm. in your field, but then again, yeah, it is uncomfortable. <laughs> I think the uh, availability or lack of availability of material certainly governed the content of the podcast project, particularly because we, we've turned it around in less than a year, so it was quite a tight timescale for bringing it together. And as I said before, the women that we profile tend to be from the 19th and 20th centuries, probably because there's more information available in the archives. We were also keen on getting... Um, a mix between town and gown, having people who were affiliated with the university and those who weren't, but it has tended to be more people who are affiliated, um, probably because of the use of university archives as well. But on the point also about, I think there was a reference to kind of collaborative methodologies or mixed methodologies, and one of the exciting parts of the project was that our researchers came from different fields. So they also brought different approaches to the original research they did. So the way that it worked is we had six researchers who produced um, kind of narrative slash essays, and then we turned them into podcast scripts. And the way that people approached that was different. So one of our researchers, JC Niala, she had a background in creative writing. And when she produced her um, essay or paper on the woman, it was written in the first person um, through her experiences, which is something we decided not to translate to the podcast because we wanted the series to kind of be uh, uniform. We wanted it to be recognizably part of the same series. 
but we also interviewed her as part of the podcast and I think some of that passion for her subject and that kind of interest in what this woman's perspectives would have been really came through on the podcast as well. Um, another of our researchers, Bethany White, she did um, an oral history approach. She was looking at a maths tutor called Ida Busbridge and she did interviews with some of her former students and we picked that out in the script that we read on the podcast and in our interview with her as well. Um, and also our researcher who we have here, Janneke, who looked at um, an anthropologist called Maria Chaplitska. In that podcast, we also talked about um, some of the material objects and material culture that Maria had collected on an expedition to Siberia, which, in that, which those objects are now in the Pitt Rivers Museum, and that came out in the podcast as well. So even though there's some kind of imposed uniformity on the series, I hope the fact that the researchers approached it in different ways comes across <coughs> in the podcasts as well. What use are you putting it to? You're making it available? Yeah, so it's a, the podcasts are all freely available via the university iTunes yeah, site, so they're live now. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a website that goes with it that has sort of links and further reading on the women. Um, the, as a six-part series, it's kind of a, a standalone project for the two of us who've... Um, but we would... We would like other people to maybe inspired to do similar things or carry mm. something on. Uh, for us, kind of the next part that we're doing is talking to local schools. Um, mm. Something I mentioned before about how they might be interested in looking mm. at these women or how their students might want to think about women in their own communities, how they might do their own <coughs> research projects as well. I think in my general curriculum, one of the things as and I just explained because we don't have a material. So actually, mm. I'm starting to call it, I have to call it the material. So what we did was like, you know, students have to go out and bring their own materials. It could be family, in the family. It could be like, you know, outside. Doesn't mm. matter. They need to, and I have a part A and part B. Part B is there to bring. They can bring like photograph. They can bring like an about family story. Uh, um, uh, the, the the experience of uh, father and mothers, mm -hmm. you know, negotiating household work, anything that they can bring it in. So, like, you know, the second part of my curriculum is like substituting their experience and looking at through gender and and a gender lens and also debating and like you know making a a, a like you know material, you know, replicable materials. Thank you. Are there any um, any Uh, I'm thinking of referring to what we discussed before because this is a uh, kind of like a long-term struggle and also confusion that I have in terms of agenda studies within the larger educational institute and how gender studies should kind of have this dialectical relationship between policy making and the institute itself as well as how we're doing as scholars um, and how we communicate with the grander society. So let's. I have this like idea that every time when a gender studies um, curricula or course was brought into like a new institute, let's say my old institute in Hong Kong, everybody's very excited. But at the end, it turns out like it's kind of like a feminization of these whole courses and the whole, including sociology itself. In my old institute in Hong Kong, it's mostly girls taught by women teachers and then being despised by people who are studying like engineering, science, and business. 
who are, have like predominantly male students. And then when <coughs> are these students graduates? Because I kind of witnessed my uh, cohort of students graduates. And then these female girls studying sociology back in Hong Kong go to work in Starbucks. Well as like those male like engineer students go to work in those so-called promising discipline like out there. So that I feel like there's a it is totally a feminization of these subjects. So it's very exciting when it gets introduced, but it's also sad because it sets like the boundary of who studies this and then what are the aftermaths or outcome of studying it. And then at the other side I was thinking like how gender studies is really communicating with the Gwanda society and or even the institute itself. Let's say when I was applying for school, uh, I think there are many schools that offer gender studies or sexuality studies or whatever. But when I'm like really feeling the form, there are only a few schools that I could choose, like non, neither women or men, or sex, like in terms of categories. I think it's very left behind when it goes to the institutional level. So, like these are just what I'm confused <coughs> of. And also, like I was thinking of. Um, <laughs> Like I know LSE, like this year they have like a sexuality studies, LGBT studies this year for master's program. But what I experienced back home is that if you go to like an LGBT like seminar or whatever, it's just LGBT people. Yes. It never goes like reach beyond these yes. like little categories. So this is what I'm always very confused. No, I I think if if we introduce this successfully, then then gender is a, should be an important component in all history papers I teach, no matter whether they are on the Cold War or something else. Because gender is, is part of how our societies function. If I want to understand how our past society works, it's, it's a category that, that I have to uh, pay attention to alongside others. And, and I think this is what I, as a as a teacher of uh, history courses, find that I have to do, and, and, my, and my students do that. They, they don't just take courses in gender studies, they take a course in, in, I don't know, 19th century European history, but of course there will be a week when we talk about maybe gender explicitly, and then gender crops up again in, in different topics, and I think then it's most enriching, and, mm -hmm. and then it's also something that's less sort of ghettoized and something that that they're not only women scholars address, but of course I have male scholars who male colleagues who also raise issues of gender, both femininity and masculinity. And and when we're all aware of it then, then I think we're making some <coughs> intellectual um, um progress. But I totally agree with you that there is a danger of of doing it and feeling really good about it. But yeah. somehow <laughs> only speaking amongst ourselves. I think it's really interesting that I am already facing the danger in Burma because we don't have a starting yet, but in Burma because of the Aung San Suu Kyi being very prominent, right? And, and on the other hand, like there are a lot of gender inequality. So that between the divide and gender, the word itself is very sexy. And it, but it kind of is a, in, in among I and you and all this stuff as Burma open it up. But on the other hand, nobody wants to talk about gender. So actually already there, because I like this NGO feminism coming into Burma, and they talk about gender as women and rights only. Yeah, if, if I can just add to it, I mean, there are two points to be made. One is, I think, the disconnect between women's movement and women's studies. 
and yeah. the origins of that and that increased disconnect when it is treated within academe, you know, as an academic subject and the diminishing somehow power, potency, yeah, of, of gender women study. I mean, that's a perennial, yeah, uh, kind of debate uh, 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 problem. Uh, secondly, um, you're absolutely right that those who uh, feel the kind of frustration you feel often are drawn to development, yeah, development studies, development uh, practice, uh, work with development agencies. I mean, in the way that in 1970s, I think, many of us were part of a women's movement that somehow has somehow ceased yeah, to, to exist in the same way. Nowadays, many of the students here, also from the women's studies, which, which is after all located in humanities, are actually signing up for the option yeah, of gender and development. Yeah, because they feel exactly that need to yeah, engage yeah, in what they consider meaningful and transformative yeah, work that makes sense of yeah, the particular theoretical yeah, and academic work they're doing. But I think it's an issue, it's a, yeah, issue that's at the heart of, I think, women and gender studies, yeah. movement and academia. Yeah, so yeah, we have one more question and then we'll move on and then we'll come back. Thank you. My name's Derek Rovick and I, I um, concern myself with women in their role in, in, as parties to disputes and in resolving disputes. I'd just like to say one thing. Everybody knows that women in England have not been able to own land. It enables, or any property, particularly if they're married women, it enables Antonia Fraser to say that a woman couldn't even give her husband a present because everything she had was already his. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. Women in England throughout history, in all times and places, have owned land themselves in their own right, in their own name, from the top down to as far as anyone owns land, because most people in England don't own land and never have, they're too poor. But in all those social classes above the property owned line, Women have owned land always. Now, why is it that the myth survives? It's because women have not broken through the third-rate, secondary, male-generated sources that say, that create the myth. And that's where the sources question comes in. The first thing is, never when you're studying works for men too, but it's so important that women shouldn't be taken in by the confines of, of the secondary sources. Antonia Fraser um, quotes a man who just happens to be lucky enough to have had his book survive. He was a mutton-headed lawyer, <laughs> and, and uh, no one has ever taken him really seriously, but that's the way it is. 
So the first thing is, look for the, the real sources. It's so easy when you break through. I mean, how anyone could say, continue the myth, when Lady Anne Clifford's diaries are available, easily available, everything's so easily available now, half a dozen books written about her. Not only did she own land herself, half, uh, most of Westmoreland and half of North Yorkshire, <laughs> in her own right, she was only this book. She fought all her life to retain it. And even to the extent that when that horrible Simon character, James I, had her in and bullied her, with the Privy Council there and the Archbishop of Canterbury bringing to, to bear divine wrath against her for being puppety, she stuck it out and refused to allow him to act as arbitrator in the dispute between her and her male relatives. And she kept her land till she died, lived all the way through the 17th century. And there are so many, there are hundreds of sources that replicate this. And it's only just a question of breaking through the secondary rubbish and getting at them. Can I hand on to Julie? Yes. Lane? So our final question is, we've already been talking about methodology now, so what I wanted to ask you is, getting more specific, um, not only how did you find a methodology that worked for you, but also do you see it as within your discipline or outside your discipline? I mean, Joanna, you're talking about feeding between disciplines. We've had talk about doing serious history at the same time. Julia, you, you were saying how the methodology you find useful has been done by other people before. Mm. So that aspect. But also, do you see yourself as presenting your work and your methodology differently in different contexts? So for example, <laughs> if you're in a country where gender studies isn't a thing, then do you stop saying you do gender studies and present it differently? So very broadly, how do you find your methodology and how do you present it, both in teaching and research in general? Mm, that's a good, very good question. <laughs> it's certainly in, in China when I used to well, difficult to get permission to do and so on you certainly would avoid gender research. Exactly. but uh, the secret uh, opening doors of archives was always to say women's studies mm. That's it helped incredibly oh, oh, foolish. oh women's <laughs> studies oh yes oh yeah, do go ahead. Oh, there's nothing safer than that. Oh, that's all right then. The women's stories. Yeah, so it absolute. Yeah, it was the key. Yeah, it's so yeah. funny because as opposed to say women, you're not disturbing the norms. So it's oh, fine. Right. Oh, oh, you might be redefining some women's things. Yeah. 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 Sorry, you won't just say that. No, no, I mean, uh, I mean part of what I, I study is also looking at um, the development of the historiography of women's history, U.S. women's history. And, um, and recently I was actually talking with one of my students about the Marxist feminists, who many of whom were coming out of the movement, and all, then people who were taking more of the post-structuralist gender terms, turn um, who were taking on, say, Foucault and Derrida um, as their way of gaining authority. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of going with two different sort of levels of authority. And, um, 
And so, I mean, I think a lot of it is our methodology is held up and our quality of our research is held up to a double standard. I mean, um, there's, there's a book, Carolyn Bynum, that Carolyn Bynum did. It was Holy Feast, Holy Fast. Brilliant book about sort of women's uh, relationship with food, particularly within the church and amongst the saints. And um, my, my teacher, when I was teaching it, says, this is the ultimate in good girl history. <laughs> and, and I'm like, what? You know, what are you talking about? And she says, no one could question her thesis. She had crossed all of her T's, she had dotted her I's, she'd minded her P's, she'd minded her Q's. Every footnote had three, you know, backups to it. I mean, it was, she just went so much further. Um, and so sometimes I feel like my methodology, whether it is taking on theory, or, you know, doing my footnotes, or how, however it is, it is to sort of reinforce my authority using sort of the professional apparatus. That's interesting. I, I'm speaking as an uh, ethnographer, and for me, huge issues have been yeah, uh, partial knowledge, the limitations on any outsider entering in a society which is, yeah, uh, is uh, not a member or has an academic knowledge yeah, um, uh, of. So for me, uh, it has been important to think about the kind of relationships I set up with informants, respondents, um, and uh, relationships that not only involve those who deliver particular responses and knowledge, but with reflective voices, that is, with intellectuals, you know, academics, society mm -hmm. I'm studying. So often, you know, ethnographers march into society, do their village study, you know, their interviews, ignoring, yeah, the extraordinary and often very rich scholarship that exists in that particular country. And so out of these considerations, but also out of an awareness of the <coughs> partiality of, of my knowledge, and the length of travel and uh, my uh, uh, it has been my concern to to develop a uh, collaborative um, relationship a relationship with uh, partners uh, who are local who are insiders and uh, through that particular relationship to make that discovery yeah that journey uh, or make that relationship with my uh, partners, my collaborators, part of that journey of discovery. So it was not only the interview conducting with imams and so on, it was also that conversation with my uh, collaborator, with my partner, and that dialogue, that disagreement, yeah, the different viewpoints, positionalities brought you know, upon uh, the interpretation of particular events or conversations that evolved for me, to me, uh, one of the most important, I think, feminist yeah, methods um, of, of collaboration. I do think that that is much uh, undervalued. I think that is not sufficiently theorized. Um, and uh, I think that is, for me at least, you know, the most, I think, important advance that I think we've made in, in, in terms of my work. It's a really interesting when you say that in Burma, whenever our, our people ask me, 
you know, uh, and I'm particularly I'm working with the government official and university lecturer and education centers. And whenever they ask me, what do you do or what are you doing? So two things they always comment. Number one, oh, still you are in study. You are st still studying yeah. like a student, right? <laughs> and the second question is that, and I'm really interested in that they say, what do you do? I'm studying on gender. What? You have nothing else to study? So that's like a just very very common as you know comment, and actually I agree with you, and I have to go deeper to dig it, you know. So when I do did my PhD, I have to look at colonial sources, British literature and nationalist literature, song, everything like and just to prove one small point that like you know I am not making up that is the truth, and also really interesting that I have to prove that not just only in Burma and Burmese culture. Everywhere, gender is still struggling. So, so it's a, like in a two thing. And actually, the Maria is right because often I don't bring the things that I ask them to, you know, like you know, participate and lead. For example, like I look uh, last time when we had a workshop, I asked them to test my gender curriculum, and I asked them, I list them all the, uh, I asked them proverbs about gender discrimination. So they have to talk about all the proverbs. And there are hundreds of proverbs. <laughs> Not even one proverb that criticize men. All proverbs criticize women. So like you know, they when they start to involve it, they realize it. Wow, that's that is something. So actually like you know, so you need to really have it look it take a longer time to convince and you know, like go dig deeper to make your point and making them that your culture is like, you know, we are not attacking the culture. But that is like in a general trend. And so actually last time when I was talking about, I was talking about what happened in, in Australian and US presidential campaign to make my point that yeah. everywhere we are still struggling. I can pitch in with another story. If I, <laughs> I, I do uh, own my Americanness sometimes, though not in this election. Um, but um, so one of so one of so I'm starting this new project, and um, it comes out of my old project. I was do I was finishing up an article which had to do with the changing status of women in New York nightlife. You know, good girl history. Um, and so I go up to Albany, where the uh, New York State archives are. And um, I sign in, they say, oh, what do you want to look at? Oh, I want to look at the Bedford Hills State Reformatory for Women's Records. And they're like, oh, so what are you working on? And I'm like, oh, well, I just wanted to see some of the, you know, the policies about reformatories in, in relationship to the war. Um, go in, have no problem, clicky-click, you know, go out, no, no, um, no um, bars put on my research or how I was going to use it. But when I was there, when I was looking at this material, I found multiple stories. I hadn't seen this in, in you know, my 15 years of working on my book and doing you know, all of this stuff. Um, maybe it's 20, I'm not gonna do the math. Um, and I had never found stories of women being raped. And I found in this collection um, multiple stories about the inmates' statement. It was partially Rockefeller funded. They want to know about the causes of women's delinquency. So they asked them a number of questions about their dreams, their you know whether they drank, they smoked, what their parents did, the environment they lived in, but also whether they'd experienced sexual coercion. And so I found a number of stories about sexual coercion. So I come back here. I look into this. I don't find anyone's talked about it. Um, I apply for money, I get it, this is great. Um, thank you, history faculty, thank you, Rothermere American Institute. I hire a graduate student from SUNY Albany 
she goes in, she says what she's working on. She's working on sexual, um, you know, sexual coercion um, and the stories of sexual coercion amongst these women. The head archivist says to her, you're going to have to anonymize everybody. The youngest one of these women would be 105 this year. <laughs> and he says, no, we have to anonymize them. We have to protect their privacy. And um, we and I'm like, they're not guilty of anything. They they got raped, you know. Um, and it's like there's nothing for them to be ashamed of. And I know that I am imposing my current politics on them, but they're dead. And I think it's important for this generation to know about issues about rape culture. So, um, he bullied me. Um, he said that the sources are only open uh, based on the head archivists say so. And if I refuse to not anonymize these women, that he'd close them down and close the sources down. Like, fine, okay, I'll anonymize them. But, but, part of, but before he said that and before I gave in, he said, besides which, there's no statute of limitation on sex crimes. So immediately, of course, you know, I, I'm furious, I'm shaking um, after this. So I immediately go to the RAIN network, which is the rape and incest um, network in, in the US, and I go up and look at the New York state laws. The only time there's not a statute of limitation is if a man rapes a woman with a deadly weapon. So the only case, the only situation, I, he is asking me to anonymize the rapists to protect them from being written about. As you can see, I'm still angry. Um, and, and so, you know, so what actually happened, I was able to get money again from the university, from the Fell Fund, to have a conference on anonymization. And to think about the practice, oh, and I anonymize him in the article. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but to think about what it means for different people. What does it mean to anonymize a person who is raped. What does it mean to anonymize a rapist? What does it mean to anonymize, this is a friend of mine's work, um, she works on the Holocaust, what does it mean to anonymize a Nazi guard? What does it mean to anonymize a woman who had been raped in the ghetto? I mean, it's, it's a very different story. Sean Pooley, so that was Zoe Waxman's work, who's really amazing. Mm -hmm. Sean Pooley, who's working on longevity and the story of sort of, you know, childhood resilience over a period of time, tells this moving story about a woman who was left in an orphanage in a state home, spending a good portion of her life, not all of it, she had a very rich life, but a good portion of her life trying to figure out who she was and what her name was. You know, in trying to find out any sort of history they had about where she was born and what her background was. So taking away her name has meaning and it has politics. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I am, you know, so part of it is, you know, doing this good girl history. And I've done good girl history for all these years. But now, you know, I am finding myself fairly inspired and, you know, bitter and vengeful. Um, <laughs> I am a nasty woman. Um, um, to, to think about some of these issues. And so, but you know, my... The class went up because yeah. your assistant was young. That was what caused it. Um, yeah, and he definitely, I think, had power, you know, and a powerful relationship. She, she regularly does research in there for people, and that's why she was recommended to me. 
So I do think that was a difference, but I also think the fact that I was a woman felt mm -hmm. that he, he could end the topic, and I, he yeah. felt that he could definitely sort of bully us. Um, my conclusion in this, um, and the conclusion to this paper I was working on, is that I, um, because I ended up doing this whole sort of aside on Freud, and thinking about how much through Freud and post-structuralism, we are taught to interrogate our sources, and distrust our sources. And so one of the things that I'm going to be doing in this book sort of very self-consciously and make it out front is when a woman says she's been gang raped twice, I'm not thinking that the second rape dis, you know, disallows the first discussion of rape. That in, so it's one of these, these stories where I'm going to be taking her at her word and I'm going to let all the officials in the sources do the questioning. That I don't need to be involved with the, the cops and the sheriffs and the prison guards in questioning her validity. I can bring out her voice and, and take her at her word, even if there is an intellectual danger in doing so. This is an important methodological move for mm -hmm. me. That's interesting, yeah. That came out of the work that yeah. you were doing and that anger too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. In uh, the current work, I'm working on the soundscapes and the soundscapes um, uh, that associated with the history of women's masks. Um, and uh, we have great political difficulties right now, getting permissions to do work and so work. And so I was forced about a year ago to let go of particular interviews, to let go of particular um, visits not allowing me to do the recording of chants. And it was at that point in time that the local women, the Muslim women and imams took over. Mm. And their point was, simply, well, this is our history. These are our traditions. We don't see that you would need to be there. Let's discuss what, yeah, the, uh, needs to be discussed, but let us ask the question, these are our aunts, these are our grandmothers, they are the ones who were part of the traditions, they can tell us, they can chant us and recite to us. So in a way, they took away from us, the two researchers, yeah, um, the work and so on, and assumed the mental of authority. Mm. Yeah. And insisted, I mean, this is a, a songbook they're producing, a songbook of, you know, never before recorded chants that are part of that tradition, insisting on putting their names mm -hmm. yeah, to this songbook. Okay, we are publishing, as we know, the radar. But, yeah, the importance of putting a name to that, mm -hmm. yeah, of identifying themselves, and even dealing with the consequences that came home to me, yeah, also. Of, yeah, and the lesson I was taught yeah. um, about taking charge or taking responsibility for that project was but extraordinary. Yeah. It's really also like you know, I have a different thing that maybe you all can advise me. Mm. And uh, I produce a film called Dreams of Dutiful Daughters, mm -hmm. which is like I call it all the life story of women who are illegal and living in Taiba Mabora. And of course, there's a lot of rape, HIV, AIDS, you know, like you know, and all this stuff. And then when I record it, I have done uh, hundreds of stories. And I never thought that they would tell me 
about their life. Mm-hmm. Why should they tell me, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, but when they actually told me, and th- considering at the time like a lot of intelligence from Burma, all this stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, but kind of when I actually record them, and I told them. Can you tell me about your life? Mm. And these women start to talk about everything yeah. that I wish they never told me, right? <laughs> and because I want they start to tell me, and I was I was shocked, <coughs> and they were also shocked, and I was shocked. Why are they telling me this? Mm. And they were shocked. And I, I when I asked them, they said that nobody ever interested in our life, and nobody ever asked. We have never spoken about our life at mm. all. So at the end, like you know, I managed to call it like you know, mm-hmm. a manageable theme of one hour of daughters and the duty and the dreams and how they collapse. Mm-hmm. And a really interesting thing is that when I asked them, I'm making a documentary film and you know, I, 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 and they said to me, yes, please do anything. We don't want any women to be like us. So like you know, so please prevent this. So I thought it was very courageous and very brave, and I was also delighted that they gave me, you know, like you know, per, uh, or whatever you call power and permission. But after I make a film, and that film become very, uh, uh, very successful, and I won a lot of awards, and. Uh, because of this, I did not use any artistic work, and I just like you know transfer, right? Can transfer, you know, like you know, so give to the voice of them. And uh, many people, including university, asked me, can you sell it to us? Because we can teach. And I got really confused. So when I asked these women when me to do anything to use is, you know, to highlight the plight of them. But at the same time, I was not very sure how much do I need to protect. Because for example, like in you know, a one gag or eight, eight, and she never told her parents. You know, so actually, the like, so I just caught up yeah. with that. What does that mean? What do I do? What kind of ethic, morality do I have? And uh, I'd like, you know, they permit, will give me a permission, but they, do they know the extent of this? If I release documentary, I can never control. Yeah. You know, like, you know, so I, I, I so yeah. that is like, you know, Dalai Lama, that even though, you know, we took in charge of, oh, I'll do that, mm. I'll take authority. And I will voice for them. But they are also like, I know, ethical and moral, the lama that we face. Yeah, yeah that. I'd like to open this yeah, to the floor for questions, reactions. As this was the last question, feel free also to go back to things that came up earlier. Yes. Can I make two slightly separate points? First of all, the power thing of the archivist um, and letting the, the questions come out from the sources. Um, when my name's Susanna Ho, when I was writing a history of Western women in Hong Kong, um, I knew that there was a lady Napier <coughs> before the taking of Hong Kong living in Macau. I got in touch with the family, got all her letters, and um, quoted a letter, and then gave my opinion of what she'd said. And because I'm a very polite researcher and writer, I sent it back to the family, and all hell broke loose. Yeah. How dare you make this, give your opinion of our ancestor. And I thought, well, first of all, I was being bullied. But but secondly, I thought, you know, I can win this one 
I simply took out my opinion because the letter said it all. <laughs> I didn't need to say what, yeah. what I thought of this cow of a woman because she, she'd said it in her letter. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, then your point about the, the um, this is a completely different subject, about um, anonymizing. Uh, we lived in Papua New Guinea for five years and we had um, a housemaid, a housewoman. I kept a diary and I wrote down everything she told me. She had, um, our garden boy said that she had too much husbands and there was something in that. <laughs> anyway, I wrote, her, wrote the first volume of what I wanted to say and I realized that she was Margaret, she was a person. I had no right to appropriate her story, let alone use her name and the name of her too much husbands. So what I did was, we were by that time, I think back in England, after being in Hong Kong for 10 years, I found um, a contact in, Hong, uh, in Papua New Guinea who took my manuscript to Margaret. Um, although I had taught her to read and write to a certain extent, she obviously couldn't read the manuscript, but this uh, contact of mine went through the whole thing with her, pretty well read it to her and explained what it said. And she said exactly the same. You use my name, you use the name of my husband's, I want the story told. It's my life. I wouldn't have been able to publish it without it being her life, her name, her person. Yeah. Just any old anonymous person would, would have been meaningless. But now I want to, for the last few years, I've wanted to publish the second volume, which is even more about Margaret. But I can't get in touch with her. I've tried every which way. I've, I've almost given up. And I, I don't feel able to publish it without her knowing about it, even though the book won't be available in Papua New Guinea. And it's, it's a problem, and it sort of sits there in my heart, you know, yeah. don't know what to do. But this is a problem, isn't it? Despite the fact that one asks for permission, that I tell these particular congregations, these are the stories I tell, and it you know will be published abroad. I will present this yeah in you know uh, uh, other countries. The question is always to what extent do particular women with yeah and yeah this is a dilemma this rather limited experience of the outside world who've lived confined lives understand all the implications including political implications. I mean, that is, you know, on the one hand, you say, how dare you? Isn't that arrogant? You know, these women have perfect agency, uh, the right to, yeah, uh, make, yeah, that decision. But on the other hand, you also understand the life and the circumstances and the constraints under which these women live, who often also want to help you and support you. There are all kinds of mixed motivation. They like you so much. And you've come so afar, you know, you've done so much travel and you suffer from the heat and the least they can do is, you know. So, you know, you have that. And then you have to make a very difficult decision who it is you're writing for. You know, what kind of audiences are we writing for that? And sometimes the decision has to be you don't include, yeah, the different stories. It's and really interesting that I, you know, like in a form my film, you know, I wish part of me, I sell it, raise the fund, fund for them so that they can actually start a little bit of business or whatever, going back to Burma. Now they, yeah. you think they are allowed to go back to Burma. Part of me, I want to do that. But part of me, I, I don't want to do that. And, and now who am I to decide? And they will not agree with that. 
So actually, like, you know, you, know, you were so right, sitting in my heart and not knowing what to do next. Well, I think all researchers face that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any other questions or reactions? Um, in which case, we have a drinks reception for all of us here. Mm-hmm. First of all, I'd like to you thank the speakers. What I found really fascinating, we did as it unfolded, we started really realizing this really ethical and human dimension to this research, how it can link to policy, to mentoring, now to the ethical treatment of sources, which, yeah, it just made, made, really made me realize how many aspects of our lives are touched by doing this kind of work. And I really want to thank all of you for coming, for talking so honestly about your work and your projects. And hopefully over drinks, we can get to talk <laughs> more among each other. So let's thank our speakers. Thank you. Thank you.